As we wrap up our second full year of Space and Things, we thought we'd do something a little different. We're aware that many of our listeners are very passionate about spaceflight, and maybe you're looking for a way to spread that passion and inspire others. So today, we talk to John Wolfram, who is part of the NASA JPL Solar System Ambassadors Program, to find out more about the program and how you could be involved. Don't forget to get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts on what we're doing. You can do this via our social media pages, at Space and Things 1 on Twitter, and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider pressing the share button and letting your spaceflight loving friends know about our podcast. But right now, enjoy episode 104 of the Space and Things podcast. You are listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 104 of our podcast. Can you believe it's been two years now, Emily? I really can't. It doesn't seem like that long. It seems like it's really like been in the blink of an eye to me, but it's certainly been a lot of fun, and I hope we get a few more years, so that, yeah, that would be too. awesome. Me too. Right, let's just get straight on with this week's guest. In the intro of pretty much every podcast we've done, Emily has asked people to get in touch with their thoughts on what we're doing. And today's guest did just that to pitch today's episode to us. And Emily and I both thought it was a wonderful thing and a program we should absolutely spotlight. So today we speak to John Wolfram, who is a NASA JPL Solar System Ambassador. But what does that mean and is it something we can all be a part of? Well, today we're going to find out. Hey, congratulations. This is real good. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get to the Ambassador Program, tell us a little bit about how you got inspired by spaceflight. What's your origin story? Well, that's a really good question. I'm not sure my origin story would be very different from that of most of your listeners. I've always been interested in space. I can remember as a kid, being interested in space and getting a telescope and watching science shows on TV like Cosmos or Nova and reading magazines or books about telescopes and space, seeing that my dad's National Geographic with the Apollo 11 on the cover or listening to the space record that came in that one National Geographic magazine. So as far back as I can remember, I've been interested in that. And it's just something that I've sort of maintained across the course of my life. Uh, never really kind of stopped being interested in it and just sort of fed the beast as I grew, as we went, you know, reading books and watching movies and uh, getting more interested in telescopes and things of that nature. And now I get to feed the beast with listening to content on podcasts like this and, <laughs> uh, and taking other content in that wasn't available when I first got interested in space, you know, 40 years ago, uh, but that you can do now online through the social media, which is great. Absolutely. So I'm looking behind you and you've got a lovely collection of space books on your back wall there. Do you have a favorite? So I do like Michael Collins's book, uh, like many other people. It's just such a terrific book. Absolutely. There's a number of other ones I really enjoyed. Uh, there's a book called One Giant Leap that I recently read that shed a different light on the space program in terms of society at large. Oh, nice. And sort of the societal impacts of Apollo of the space race and where it led us in ways that don't just mean we beat the Russians to the moon, but in terms of the way that it jump-started technology in the United States 
and uh, other things of that nature. So as I've read more and more of these books, I've started to come at it, uh, broaden the horizon, so to speak, beyond just the astronaut stories or the summary of Apollo missions and understand it in, in wider circles of really the American history and really world history in terms of the way space exploration has impacted the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. I feel there's been a few books like that that have done that recently that really tried to add more context to what is actually going on with spaceflights. I find it fascinating. Anyway, let's start talking about this ambassador program. What is it? It really is an interesting thing that I think a lot of people may not know about. And I stumbled across it recently. I can tell you how that happened too. But basically the NASA JPL Solar System Ambassadors Program, it's a public engagement effort, which brings motivated space enthusiasts to the table to help learn from NASA experts about astronomy and space and space missions and NASA's story, really, and the incredible discoveries that we made through space exploration and bring that out to the communities where these ambassadors live and sort of present that information. So it's really an advocacy program in a lot of ways. We have the opportunity to set up meetings in the community, whether it's, say, with a school or with some scout troops or at the Rotary Club or maybe a public library, all public events where we anyone can come and where we basically spread the good word about space, about space exploration. And sometimes it's more timely. So a lot of activity this summer uh, about you know presentations on the James Webb Space Telescope. Right now, I think over the next month, we'll see a lot of activity, maybe even weeks, we'll see a lot of activity around Artemis. So some of the more timely, newsworthy space activities, uh, obviously a hot topic. But there are other activities we put on just, you know, going to a star party where some folks are bringing out telescopes to the park. Oh, and that's nice. also a sort of a side way of being an advocate for space. The first time a person looks through the telescope and sees Saturn's rings is something most people will remember forever because it's, it's awesome, right? So yeah, absolutely. that's another way of doing it. And a lot of the time it's just um, all public events. You know, we're not NASA employees. We have to be very careful to tell people that we don't speak on behalf of NASA. We're just volunteers. We're trained, but we're just volunteers. And uh, we can't charge people to come to these events. It's all public. It's really all about spreading enthusiasm, spreading information and inspiring people to be excited about the wonders of space and space exploration. That's amazing. So how did you find out about it and how does one apply to be involved? Is it, is it difficult to get selected? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the way, I, well, the way I figured it out, you know, when the pandemic first started, my wife and I, we have four children and we encouraged them, once it became obvious the pandemic wasn't going to be a very short-lived thing, we encouraged them to do something to make good use of this gift of time that they would have by virtue of their other activities being postponed. We said, do something worthwhile for yourself or for others. And so they started to do that. And then I realized, you know, I'm talking the talk, but I'm not really walking the walk. And so I thought I better listen to my own advice. And since I've always liked space, I decided I would get online and just search for what kind of volunteer activities, opportunities would exist in a virtual capacity to do things with NASA. And so I came across the website for the Solar System Ambassadors Program, which I had never heard about. Mm. And as it turns out, it's a process where you can apply during the month of September. And in that month, they accept applications. And then by the end of the year, they let the applicants know whether they've made it into the program or not. And so, you know, the application process was not 
insignificant. It was pretty vigorous. It's almost like applying to a university. You have to provide information about your own background and your interests. You have to persuade the team as to why you would be a good ambassador, provide some ideas for what kind of events you would host in your first year of being an ambassador, answer some short essay questions, and provide uh, quite a number of references for people who NASA can call. So you know, they didn't quite do a full background check, I don't think, but it was a pretty <laughs> rigorous process that uh, you, know, you realize the bar must be reasonably high. And I was thrilled to find out when I did get the notice in December that I had been selected. It was really exciting. That is some process, isn't it? I wasn't expecting that as an answer. Did you feel like you were filling out forms to become an astronaut? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, I wish, right? That would have been great. <laughs> you never give up hope. Yeah, absolutely. I, the way I, I looked at it was that they want to make sure that you're going to fulfill the mission. The ideal applicant is somebody who's enthusiastic and knowledgeable about space. And you know, sometimes you can... You can be one of those two things, but what they really want is someone who's both so that in a setting where I'm presenting to the public, whether it's school children or whether it's senior citizens or whether it's just the community at large at the public library, I need to be able to knowledgeably explain uh, the subjects that I'm talking about and attentively join into the training sessions that they provide for us, adhere to the rules, and also do all that while at the same time bringing the energy and making sure that people get inspired and enthused by what I can tell them. Yeah. So I notice on the patch, it doesn't have the NASA logo on. That's why it also kind of surprised me that the process was so vigorous. But equally, the way you just explained it absolutely makes sense because people won't necessarily see the distinction, even though you don't have the NASA patch on them. People won't see that distinction, will they? No. And it's a very important distinction because the, so strictly speaking, the Solar System Ambassadors is a program run out of NASA JPL. And so we're not employed by NASA. It's a voluntary program in cooperation with Caltech. And the program really is uh, very careful about branding. So I don't wear NASA logo items. I don't talk on behalf of NASA or speak on behalf of them. Uh, we have our own logo. And you know, if I present, prepare a slide deck, I'm not supposed to use the NASA logo. I use the Solar System Ambassadors logo. We can use material that NASA provides. And in fact, they give us a lot of great stuff for going out to host these events. They give us stickers and bookmarks. And you know, it's always exciting for the kids at these events at the schools to get a bunch of NASA stickers. Frankly, it's pretty exciting for the ambassadors to get a package in the mail from NASA. I mean, yeah. A little bit of a thrill. <laughs> I'm ashamed to admit that at my age, it's still exciting to get a box in the mail from NASA. But yeah, so it's a it's a very careful type of managing the brand, which obviously NASA has such an outstanding brand that uh, it's not difficult to get people enthused about sticking the NASA sticker on their iPad or whatever. Yeah, I feel the same when I get emails from the at NASA.gov. It always excites me, you know, no matter who it is. Oh, this is cool. That's right. Gets the heart rate going a little bit, even <laughs> yeah, absolutely. if it's temporarily. That's right. So what happens next and how much training do you get before you're actually an ambassador? The training works this way. When you're first selected, you have to go through mandatory training for hosting events and interacting with the media so that you properly know how to, how to do those things. And after you do that, they'll send you an IBD badge and they'll activate your ambassador page on the ambassador's website. And beyond that point, the training is optional and they will offer usually one hour virtual sessions by NASA experts on various timely missions. So we've had, even since January, when I got the green light to go out there and start doing this activity, 
they've had training on uh, the Webb Space Telescope. They've had training on Artemis. They've had training on DART. They've offered training on older missions that are still active. Uh, you know, they've had updates to previous mission updates, all of which are virtual. You can log in and they're also archived. So if you miss one because you have an obligation, nice. um, you know, we're volunteers, right? This is your yeah. job. So if you have to work, you can always log on after the fact and watch the archives going back several years, actually. The best part is that you're getting inside access. I mean, you're getting to ask questions if you're live in the training sessions. You're asking questions of the folks who are really involved with these missions, which is terrific. Kay Ferrari at NASA JPL is the coordinator for the Solar System Ambassadors Program. And she and her team do a really outstanding job uh, with the training and with the overall management of the program. And once you've gone through all of that, uh, what exactly do you do? So this is the best part. Once you're trained and you're, you've got the green light and they send you your badge, then you're basically on your own to be able to start to set up events in the community where you can go out and talk about space or astronomy or NASA missions. So one of the first things I did, and that can be virtual or it can be in person. One of the first things I did was contacted uh, one of the, the school where two of my children go, all four of them had gone. And I said, hey, would you, I know one of the teachers up there, a science teacher, I said, can I come in and talk about uh, the history of human space exploration uh, on Earth Day? Can I come in and talk about what we know about Earth, what we've learned about Earth from space on Earth Day? And she said, this is great. We'll have the whole auditorium. We'll bring the, all three of the grades in. And I got to go in and I made a slide deck and NASA sent me a bunch of stickers and bookmarks. And it was just a terrific experience. And at the same time, I set up a couple of virtual events. So when the Webb Space Telescope revealed its images for the first time in July, I set up a virtual event because NASA allowed us to access a panel of experts. That was really an exclusive event. It wasn't something you could get on NASA TV. Oh, they nice. gave you a special login. And so I sent it out to my local astronomy club and basically just invited people to sign on to a Zoom meeting. And I would channel from there, I would log into the expert panel. We would show the images. NASA provided some information about the telescope, about the images. And so, you know, between those events, you're talking to 100 people. I do think it's important to recognize this is something that I was really surprised to learn is that the program has been around for almost 25 years uh, in its current form. And it, we have almost, I guess it's just over 1,000. So 1,125 ambassadors that have conducted 56,000 events and reached 11.6 million people. Wow. Over those 25 years with more to come. And so it's really and when you stop and think about it, you know, most people may not know that, but there are thousands of volunteer advocates out there talking to the community about space and contacting millions, tens of millions now of people to help spur interest and enthusiasm for NASA missions for space exploration. So it's it's really exciting. Sounds amazing. And you've not been doing it that long, but what have you been your favorite moments as an ambassador so far? It's a lot of fun every time you do any activity with the ambassadors. I personally like going to events with the young people, whether it's a scout meeting or a presentation at a school. Or this summer I did, I presented at a summer camp on the Webb Space Telescope uh, with 70 kids anywhere from five years old to 13 years old. Those are always fun because you never know what's going to happen, what the questions are going to be. Yeah, I like to raise the points that most, I mean, think about this. I just learned this not too long ago, that almost two thirds of the people alive in the United States were not alive the last time humans walked on the moon. I mean, that's a big number. 
That's crazy. And yeah, they could read the magazines or look at the pictures or watch Apollo 13 or <laughs> Apollo 11, which was a great movie. But some of them don't. And yeah. so the, I like to hit the kids with the facts that are that they may not believe are true. So I always start with the trivia question. You know, which of these two countries, was it the USS, USA or the Soviet Union, was the first to put a man in space, a woman in space, a lander on the moon, pictures from the dark side of the moon, a spacewalk? And every one of them says, USA, we love USA, you know, 4th of July, go red, white, and blue. <laughs> and I say, wrong. <laughs> it's the USSR. Hate to tell you. And they're shocked by this. And then I go on to explain how that happened in the space race. And eventually, they can't believe that Jim Lovell and Frank Borman spent two weeks side by side in Gemini 7, which is basically the equivalent of two front seats of a small car. They have no idea that the lunar module was 23 feet tall. It's two stories tall. And there's no seats. Uh, or they don't get that there's so much stuff left on the moon, you know, the lunar descent engines uh, on the lander or the rovers or the TV cameras or the trash or all yeah. these things. They don't get the entire exploratory area of Apollo 11 can fit on a soccer field. I'm talking to kids in a school. I can point out the window to the soccer field and say, you know, Neil and Buzz, they didn't get off the field. That's astounding to these kids to hear these kinds of things. And it's not just all the old things. You know, some of it's the new. When you talk about James Webb Space Telescope, you say, look, there's a layer of gold on these mirrors that is only 700 atoms thick. And they're shocked by that because they can't tell, looking at it, how thick the gold is. You say, these things are, these instruments on this telescope are maintained at almost 400 degrees below zero. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and the other side is almost 200 degrees above zero on the same piece of equipment, the same telescope. They're shocked by that. And then, of course, if you hit them at the end with the best one, the, the trick question of how many planets there are, you know, is it eight or is it nine? And then they fight over whether it's eight or it's nine. And I come in and swoop in at the end and say, it's five, more than 5,000 because we have exoplanets on other surrounding other suns, other stars. And so, you know, all the young people, they really enjoy that. A lot of fun just bringing facts that make it exciting, you know, that make it interesting to the young, not just the young people, but they are especially curious because they didn't get to live through any of those things. I was just about to say, I imagine some of the teachers as well were kind of like, what? How did I not know this? It is true. There's so many adults who don't know this stuff. But It's absolutely true. I mean, everyone listening here, most of the listeners to this podcast, right? We're reading astronaut biographies and we're yeah. watching the shows. And for every one of us, there's a hundred people out there who aren't doing that or who don't know. They might be interested in it, but they just haven't come across it. And Really, that's part of the job of the ambassadors is to spread that kind of word. And not just the old, not just the historical, but the new things. You know, why is Artemis going back to the moon? Why are, why are we going back to the moon? Why are we having a mission, the DART mission, where we're going to try to divert an asteroid from its path? You know, why are we doing the things that we're doing? What does it bring to us? What's exciting about it? What can we learn from it? What are we already learning from it? Uh, these are the other parts of it, that it's not just a history lesson. It's a, it's a futures lesson as well. And finally, um, do you meet up with any other ambassadors and are there any that we might know of? So a lot of the time you can coordinate events with other ambassadors in your area. You know, the website has a directory and it's geographic. So you can look up and see. I've been contacted by a few here in my hometown when I was first selected to compare notes and maybe coordinate on some events. I would say the most famous ambassador, there is one ambassador that everybody knows, Dr. Cyan Proctor was a NASA solar system ambassador. She was launched into Earth orbit just about a year ago on Inspiration4, the first flight of the all-civilian crew. 
And she was the first African-American woman to pilot a spacecraft. And she's also so far uh, the only solar system ambassador to go into space. Not that I want to go. Yes, well, I do, do. want to go. Not that I expect <laughs> to go. Everyone wants to go somewhere deep inside. Uh, so she was probably the most famous one. But I expect that, you know, they add about anywhere between 75 to 100 ambassadors each year. At some point or another, we're going to hear more about uh, other ambassadors as as the numbers grow and as the penetration increases. This is just wonderful. This has been so great, John. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this. When you first emailed me about this, I had no idea this existed. I really think there are plenty of our listeners who will want to get involved with something like this. And you can hear your passion on the subjects shining through. I'd love to be at one of your events. So thank you for doing it. And thank you for telling us about it and now telling our listeners about it, because I really do think this is wonderful. Well, it's my pleasure. I think it's very important for people to understand how much NASA does. Everybody understands, yes, we, they launch rockets. Yes, they put uncrewed spacecraft into the far reaches of the galaxy. 45 years ago, they launched Voyager, you know, things like that. But I don't think folks understand the extent of NASA's educational activities in support of STEM, in support of students all across the country, in support of hard to reach communities, and encouraging young people, supporting camps. You know, NASA supports mm. partners with a lot of camps all across the country to advocate interest in science and technologies, particularly for those who are underprivileged or folks who have it uh, the most difficult and who don't have the same opportunities as some other people. So, and that's actually one last thing I always try to tell the students at the events that I'm at is that find that area where your interest and your passion overlap. That intersection is where you want to spend your life. That's what you want to do. What are you good at? What do you love? And be aware of that. Learn that about yourself. Because if you like space, it doesn't mean you have to be an astronaut. You know, NASA hires marketers. They hire teachers. They hire educators. They hire accountants. They hire lawyers. They hire engineers. They hire social media people. They hire graphic artists. It's a long, long list of things you can do, just like we're doing here, where you play to your own strengths in the space realm. And that's something you should absolutely consider. When I was a kid, you didn't think that way. Now, because of the internet and social media, you can recognize there's so much that you can do in an area that you like. Find what you're good at and chase it. And that's what I think the solar system ambassadors are trying to do when we spread enthusiasm about space and about NASA missions, not just to the young people, but to the communities at large. Well, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again sometime. Well, thanks so much. I love the podcast. Glad to be here and all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And the Earth right out of front with us. Well, I, I love this program. I think it's great. And I, I was embarrassed that I didn't know about it. I know I'm not in America, so that might make sense. But did you know about this program beforehand? I did. I've never applied to it. And, and I'm embarrassed to say that because mainly I've got so much other stuff going on. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. But I have heard of it. And I, I honestly think it's an amazing program because, you know, as much as I love NASA, you can't always call them up and be like, hey, can we get an astronaut to speak to our class? Or, hey, can yeah. we get a scientist to speak to our class? You know, especially if you don't live near like a NASA center or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, there's only so many NASA centers in the United States. And I think it's a good idea to have just regular citizens who are versed in what NASA does, who have a lot of knowledge to go out and sort of fulfill that. Yeah, I love the fact that 
NASA take this so seriously is as well that the vetting process is so intense. Uh, as John was saying earlier in that interview, it's quite hard to become one of these things. I, I hope some of our listeners go through that process and, and let us know if you do. But I think that's great that they take this seriously. They appreciate and understand the importance of it. Yeah. Also, I like the fact that they allow regular citizens to do that. Yeah. I think a lot of people have it in their heads still that, you know, NASA is people who are just scientists and engineers. It's important for people to realize you don't need to be a scientist or an engineer to have something to do with spaceflight. And I think that's very important as well, especially to young people who might be interested in, you know, getting into spaceflight. When I was growing up, I was like, man, I would love to be an astronaut or I would love to be, you know, uh, in space flight, but I didn't quite have, you know, the, <laughs> the genius in certain areas to do that. And I think nowadays it's, well, you can still contribute. You, you don't have to be this great mathematics or engineering genius. I think it's a great way of bringing more people into the fold and feeling like they're part of it as well. The, the ambassadors I'm talking about, you know, the fact they get their packages with, with all the stuff in them. I think that's just great. Anyway, for those of you who want to know more about this, the website is solarsystem.nasa.gov slash ambassadors. Of course, I will put that link in the show notes as well as links to, to John's social media stuff. If you want to attend one of his virtual events, I'm sure he'd love to have you. Or if you just want to contact him and ask him more questions, I'm sure he'll happily answer, answer them uh, if you're interested in being part of this and you want a bit more information. Uh, I may be speaking out of turn there, but he seems like such a nice guy. I'm sure he'll happily answer your questions. Anyway, what a great interview. What a great guy. I'm really glad we covered that. Hello there, split friends. you got a little bit of me, plus Neil in the center couch, and Buzz is doing the camera work this time. All uh, right, Well, I put on a coat and tie, but I know about this ahead of time. All right, this is one of those times when there's so much going on that any attempt on doing the news is probably going to miss something out. So we're going to try our very best to get you up to date with the main things. There have been three launches since our last recording, two in China and one at Kennedy Space Center. As always, details of the payloads and any videos that we can find will be within our show notes on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, or just click in the link in the description of this podcast. Coming up this Monday, August 29th, NASA is go for launch for the Artemis 1 mission. The first launch of the Space Launch System rocket. The rocket is on the pad at Kennedy Space Center and everything is looking good. It seems that they're looking at a morning launch and the forecast is currently looking okay. So keep your eyes peeled online for the live streams in case you cannot get down there in person. This uncrewed mission is about testing the rocket out for the first time and testing the Orion spacecraft, which will take astronauts to the moon in a few years. It's going to attempt to go to the moon and back again and also has a number of secondary missions, including releasing a number of satellites, and there are even some experiments on board, including the first ever deep space biology experiment. Obviously, this is a test flight. We have to assume that things will go wrong, but hopefully they've taken the time to think of as many of the different scenarios as possible so they can get the spacecraft to the moon and back safely. If not, hopefully it will be a great test for the mission control team to get to grips with as many of the systems as they can, and the data provided by the mission will surely provide some great insight for future missions. You think you're going to get down there? I am going to try. Unfortunately, it's always something. My car is acting up, so I'm going to go hitch a ride with a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine. She might be listening, 
and I'm going to try to get down there. Um, I'll be honest, I'm nervous as hell about this. Yeah. I, I really hope it goes as well as possible. This is very, very visible. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a huge rocket, so you can't really miss it. If you live in Florida and if it's a clear morning, everybody's going to be able to see this thing. So I'm hoping it goes well. I wouldn't say flawlessly because it's a test flight. I'm expecting, and this is normal with a test flight, you expect some things to go wrong. It'd be wrong if it was flawless. Yeah. You'd be like, hang on a moment, this can't be right. Or missing something. Yeah, you don't really want it to be 100%. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think there's any test flight, you know, in NASA history that's been 100% perfect. So if this one was... I'd be a little suspicious, like, okay, they're hiding something from us. Yeah, yeah, we'll get the conspiracies going. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little nervous, though, just because this is the first one, you know, and, and oh my God, I can't wait to see this yeah. sucker go, though. I, I'm, my brain yeah. is sort of like, what is it going to look like? I expect it's going to be like seeing the shuttle, but way bigger. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said about it being very visible. NASA has definitely put this front and center, haven't they? It's everywhere at the moment. They've done a lot of work um, in outreach on this, tying in with what we've spoken about today. But they really have. I don't think that in your lifetime, Emily, or trips that you've had to the Space Coast, you're going to have seen it as busy as it's going to be next week. I think it's going to be nuts because this is the first moon rocket we've had since 1972. I mean, that's a long time. It's a real long time. Uh, most of the people who are who are friends who are of mine who are going to see this thing, we didn't see any Apollos. Yeah. Most of my friends, I, I wouldn't say all of my friends because I did have friends who were alive during Apollo, but yeah, most of us have never seen a moon rocket go. So this is going to be crazy, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so as well. I'm so excited for it, but you're right. Me too. Nervously excited as well, which I think is I think yes. is good. Anyway, my favorite story of this week comes from the JWST. Yep, the new telescope is sending back huge amounts of data. And this week, there have been some beautiful images of Jupiter released in which you can clearly see the auroras at the poles, the rings around the planet and some of the moons. They're composite images, which mean they've layered different pictures on top of each other to create this image. This is a technique commonly used in astronomy. The levels of detail is just outrageous, really. In my head, this telescope was all about images and data of things much further out from our solar system. I'm sure I read about the fact it was also going to be pointing towards things in the solar system as well, but I completely forgot. So to see it operate so well with objects so much closer and to see this, it just shows how versatile this telescope is. So we're going to do a lot more on this next week. You'll find out more about that later. Before I get to the next story, I saw those images this week. My mind was blown. I'm like, wow, Webb can do so much. Yeah. And and these are gorgeous pictures of Jupiter. And they're not just gorgeous. It reveals how much cloud cover there really is on that planet. I feel like we sort of have this attitude. Well, we know it. we've explored the solar system, so we know everything about it. And we're still finding things out, which is nuts. Yeah. Meanwhile, on Mars, speaking of exploring, NASA's Ingenuity helicopter has flown its 30th flight in what was its first flight in more than two months. The delay was because it has been winter in Jezero Crater and the helicopter's solar panel wasn't getting enough sunlight to charge the batteries for flight. There has also been a buildup of dust on the solar panel, but the short flights are still currently possible as the 30th flight proved. It was a 33-second flight, which only covered two meters of horizontal distance in order to try to knock off some of the dust buildup. 
it's crazy to think that this little helicopter was only supposed to make five flights and now it's probably going to make a 31st one pretty soon it was a little helicopter that could it's still going strong love it Okay, closer to home on the International Space Station. There was some drama on Wednesday the 17th of August when a Russian spacewalk was cut short after cosmonaut Oleg Artemyev had an electrical problem with his spacesuit. The spacewalk was supposed to be continuing the commissioning of the new European robotic arm, which is now attached to the Russian segment. But the cosmonaut was sent back to the airlock after reporting a voltage fluctuation in the battery power of his suit. Now, this didn't pose any immediate danger to the cosmonaut, but it could have caused problems had the problem developed to complete loss of power obviously including the loss of communications with both the ground and his fellow spacewalker. So the suit does have a backup power supply, but he would have had to turn that on. So he would have been out of communication for quite a while. Also, while we're talking about the ISS, a SpaceX Dragon cargo ship, which arrived on the 14th of July, has departed from the station and it splashed down near Florida on August the 20th. The ship successfully delivered 5,800 pounds, which is 2,630 kilograms for <laughs> normal people, to the station and returns with 4,000 pounds or 1,815 kilograms of science equipment. And the results of many of the things the astronauts have been working on, which will be delivered to scientists on the ground. Excuse my sass there. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I, I, I used metric units when I was in the Navy for the most part. And I just think it's funny because most Americans are like, dude, what are you talking about this centimeters crap? And I'm like, oh, you didn't learn that. Okay. And finally, <laughs> NASA has released a Oh, boy. I don't know how I'm going to get through this one. NASA has released a recording of the sound which exists in a black hole. Uh, in a tweet on the NASA Exoplanets account, they've said... The misconception that there is no sound in space originates because most of space is a vacuum, providing no way for sound waves to travel. A galaxy cluster has so much gas that we've picked up actual sound. Uh, Dave will now play the sound for you to hear. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that they've made it move around from one side of your headphones to the other. <laughs> yeah, enough, right? Enough of that, yeah. <laughs> NASA has amplified the sound and mixed it with other data, but it's the sonification of the Perseus galaxy cluster. Now, I don't know about you, but can we just go back to when space was silent? Like... <laughs> <laughs> there was a, let's just go can we just go back to wikipedia and just edit that like by the way space is silent there's no sound thank you that's it that's it that's the discovery like there's this band i used to listen to back in the day when i was a goth and it sounds just like that oh, so wow. maybe i don't know maybe they discovered it i don't know amazing amazing Okay, that's it for this week. And for our second full year of podcasts, I know we always say this, but thank you all so much for listening and for any additional support you give us, whether that's engaging with us on social media, getting in contact, pressing the share button, embedding the podcast on your website, joining our Patreon page, buying some merchandise, or just giving us a one-off donation. All those things 
are so wonderful. Uh, we now enter the difficult third year, <laughs> but we hope you'll stick around with us as we strive to continue to put out a weekly episode covering as many topics as we can. Your support really does mean so much to us. Yes, it really does. Uh, next week, we start our third year with a wonderful interview with Issa's Mark McCorkran with updates on what happened with Webb. You may remember we spoke to him just before the launch of the telescope last year on episode 68. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you me. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.